Uh, if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Philemon. Uh, that's where we were last week, just a small book near the back of the Bible. And if you were here last week, you know we I kind of opened up and I talked about um, being at my dentist back in October, and she had the news on in the, the ceiling as like uh, she was, my hygienist was doing my cleaning, and it was talking about the attack uh, by, on Israel by Hamas and just some of the things that had taken place there. And as they're kind of going through these details, she's asking these questions like, what is wrong with the world? How could people do something like this? Why would people do this? It feels like things are getting worse is there actually any hope? Um, and, and so um, I, I think for a lot of us, and we, we talked about this, that it's not just looking at those events, but we look at what might be taking place still in Europe uh, between uh, Russia and the Ukraine. We look at things going on in other parts of the world, even in our own community, and we would ask similar questions where we're going, is there hope? What, what is going on? What is wrong with people? Is there hope people can change? Is there hope for the world? And so we talked about a man named Onesimus, and we saw kind of, this is kind of what we walked away with, that Jesus transforms people, that he sanctifies us, he's making us more holy and righteous over time, that God wants to work in us so that he can work through us in the world. And so for, for, for some of us, we're going, okay, yeah, God can transform a person through the gospel. It's like, it's, it's one person. Maybe we, we would testify ourselves that we have been transformed by God through the gospel, through relationship with Jesus Christ. But when we look at the world, we might go, okay, I don't know about that. Because it, it kind of seems like when you look at things on a global scale, it's like things seem to be kind of going off the rails. And so can the gospel actually fix the mess that we find ourselves in? And a major uh, contributor to kind of the mess that we find ourselves in or that might cause the mess is that there are kind of these barriers, these existing walls of hostility that exist within the world. And, and what I mean by that is that there's these sometimes culturally determined um, barriers or walls that separate us from others and kind of keep us from coming together and they create hostility at times. Now, there's, there's barriers, walls everywhere. Like some walls are pretty small. It could be simply as this, like, you cheer for a different sports team than I do, and so we're not supposed to get along. Or you went to that school, so we're not supposed to be friends. You grew up in that town. We're always rival with that town. But, like, it, that, that's a pretty small wall. Like, you're going, oh, we have more things in common than we do differences. And you, you get along. You make friends with those people. But then there's some maybe a bit taller walls, and these could be things like political differences, like, ah, you're a liberal, I don't know, or ah, you're conservative, I don't know if we, we can get along. Maybe it's opinions on things like foreign policy. Maybe it's a bit of a taller wall because of past history with somebody that they did you wrong, and you're just like, I don't know if I, I can trust that person, again, because of what they did, or maybe because of an opinion that they hold. But then there's some really tall walls of hostility in our world that, that might look insurmountable to us. And often they have to do with a person's identity, that because of their uh, ethnicity, their religion, their nationality, whatever it is, that this creates this, this wall of hostility. And it, it's, it's interesting that two people could maybe have never met in person, but because of kind of one, something that might be their identity, they're going, well, we don't like each other. We can't get along. They might even have hatred or disdain for one another. And so we look at things like that, those, those types of barriers, and we go, man, can those be overcome? Like for, for what's taking place again in, in, in Europe with Russia and the Ukraine, like 
Could there be a time where those, those people do come together? I know that's a, that's a big question. Or, or we look at what's taking place in Israel and, and Palestine, and what's been taking place there goes way beyond October 7th. That's been going on for thousands of years. But could there be peace amongst those two groups? And I, I, I'm not naive. Like I don't think we're going to hit this golden moment on this side of heaven where there's going to be perfect peace and we, we all kind of come together and it's, it's one big kumbaya. Like It's beautiful. Like The Bible actually kind of tells us that, that time not really going to come until Christ returns. It doesn't exist on this side of heaven. And why? Well, Ephesians chapter 6, it talks about our spiritual enemies who are out to kind of sabotage the work of Christ. They're, they're fighting against him till the very end. They've lost, but they're trying to spoil that victory. And so until kind of Christ returns, there's always going to be kind of the spiritual realm, something going on there. There's going to be an enemy trying to stir up trouble. But, but my question is this, while we wait, while we wait for Christ to come and, and finalize that victory, can it become more like heaven on earth? Now, as we continue in Philemon, we also talked about Paul. He writes this letter to Philemon. He's this wealthy man who lives in the city of Colossae. He's a Christian. He became a believer as a result of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Now, uh, Philemon lives in Colossae. He's opened up his home for the church to meet there regularly. And Paul writes this letter with this, this kind of single focus to restore the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus. And we talked about how Onesimus had done Philemon wrong in some way, probably stealing some property from from him or, or money. He, he ran away. He kind of deserted his, his master and he's gone to Rome. He's trying to hide out, but somehow he comes into connection with Paul and through Paul's ministry, Onesimus becomes a Christian. And then here you have um, Onesimus returning with this letter in hand, hoping that he can be reconciled to Philemon. And he's encouraged to do that by Paul. And so this, this slave-master relationship would be a pretty tall wall of hostility. That there was a division that existed between kind of those two classes in, in Roman culture. That, that the master was of more value, worth, and importance than the slave. Now, Greek culture had a huge impact on Roman culture. And so we've all heard of Aristotle. Here's what Aristotle said, the Greek philosopher he said, and it gives us a shot into kind of some of the thinking of the time. He defined a slave as a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. And it's like, Aristotle, he said some pretty wise things, but that's not one you put on the desk calendar, like of daily wisdom where you want that displayed. Because it just, it's not a good thing. It doesn't, it didn't age well. But in our modern time, what we might wonder, okay, Paul, why would you ever encourage Onesimus to go back to your master, because doesn't slavery violate this basic human right? Now, I'll say this. The New Testament it never celebrates slavery. It doesn't endorse it. But Paul, instead of addressing the injustice of slavery, he, he says, I'm going to focus on something else. And he focuses on their identity as children of God and thus brothers in Christ. Now, I grew up with two brothers at home. And so, like, I don't know, if you have brothers... Um, if you're a boy, you have brothers, I don't know, maybe for sisters, but like there was a lot of physical fights that took place in our home. Like something would just get us going and we, we would go at it. And the church is described as a family and just like a biological family, 
There are conflicts, there are fights that arise within the church, and it can be over different things, small things like the color of the walls. It can be over major things about doctrinal issues. And so that, that can happen in the church. But one of our um, kind of our guidelines for our discipleship groups is, is this. We, we will fight for relationship. Why? Because we are a family. That, that we want to have healthy relationship, that our relationships hit new levels when we actually try and work things out. And Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5 and 18 that this is what we are to do as believers. We're trying to, to be reconciled with one another. Now, if Paul's request is carried out, it's going to be the equivalent of kind of like social dynamite that blasts through culturally determined walls of hostility. So if you have your Bible, we're going to start in Philemon uh, verse 12. And so Paul writes, I am sending Onesimus back to you. I'm sending my very own heart. I wanted to keep him with me so that in my imprisonment for the gospel, he might serve me in your place. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent so that your good deed might not be out of obligation, but out of your own free will. Maybe Onesimus was separated from you for a short time so that you could have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a loved brother. I love him very much, but you will love him even more, both as a person and as a believer in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, welcome Onesimus as you would welcome me. If he has done anything wrong to you or if he owes you anything, charge that to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back and I will say nothing about what you owe me for your own life. So my brother, I ask that you do this for me in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. I write this letter knowing that you will do what I ask and even more. And so Paul is saying, Philemon, your relationship with Onesimus, it has changed. That, that Onesimus, he's not just your slave. He's, he's more than that. He's your brother in Christ. And the basis for their reconciliation with one another is their, their joint relationship in Jesus Christ. And Paul's going, no, this isn't small. This changes everything. And so uh, James chapter 1, verse 9 it says this, believers who are poor have something to boast about, for God has honored them. And those who are rich should boast that God has humbled them. And so what, what, is, what is James kind of saying here? Well, he talks about some believers who are rich. And so let's think of it this way, um, that there are some of us in the church that we could say we've done quite well for ourselves. We've achieved some things and we might kind of go like, I'm pretty impressive. We put ourselves up on a pedestal and other people might put us up on a pedestal as well. They look up to us like, look what they've accomplished. Look at the career, look at um, their status, their titles, all of these things. Wow, that is an impressive person. But James going in Christ, you might be up on a pedestal and, and earthly things but you got to come down off that pedestal. Why? Because your riches, your titles, your possessions, your accomplishments, all of those things, they don't really count for anything when it comes to salvation. That's not getting you into the kingdom of heaven. It's not bringing you closer to God. So you have to come down off your pedestal and you come into the kingdom the same way every other person has to do it through the grace of God offered in Jesus Christ. And so what, what, what James is saying is like, no matter what you've accomplished, how good you think you are, you are not more deserving than any other Christian of eternal life. But then there's some of us where we are the opposite of that, that we don't have a lot that we could brag about. 
that, that we kind of have a low opinion of ourselves. We kind of put ourselves below others and maybe others have a low opinion of ourselves. And so others are up there, we're down here. And it's like, I don't have a lot to boast about. I haven't accomplished a lot. And we, we have this low view of ourselves. But, but James saying, but in Christ, you've been exalted. You've been brought high. That you are more loved than you ever dared hope that you would ever hope that you could be loved. And it's not because of the things that you've accomplished. It's not because of the things that you have. But it's because God has loved you. He loves you for who you are. And that you are, you are not less deserving than any other Christian when it comes to God's grace. And so Paul's point to Philemon is that in Jesus Christ, every Christian is equal. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, Paul says, For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. And so this is, this is why in the church we have often said um, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That every person who comes into the kingdom of God comes in the same way. That they have the same father, they enter in through his work. And so we said this last week that our identity as believers is received, it's not achieved. That it's given to us as a gift and so in Christ, our race, our ancestry, our wealth, our titles, our social status, it doesn't ultimately matter when it comes to eternal life. And so like every Christian is God's child. And I don't know how you form your identity, but there's no better identity than the one that you'll receive in Jesus Christ. That It can't be taken away from you. And so our Christian identity is not just a tag on like, it's not just kind of the small compartment of your life. Like, okay, I'm a Christian, so that fits into the, the spiritual component. And that's where it stays. It's not like I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christian, so it's like a gym membership is a small part of my life. No, it's to inform all of our identity. And so your identity as God's child, it doesn't demote your ident other identities. It doesn't deface them, but it needs to supersede them. That, that identity needs to inform every other identity. And so as, as a disciple of Jesus, that informs how I live as a husband. That informs how I live as a father. That informs how I live um, as, as a pastor, or we could say as in our work. That, that informs all of these other things. And so our status as followers raises us above any physical, theological, cultural, or political differences that social and cultural barriers are eliminated in Christian fellowship. I just want you to take a second and just kind of look around this room. It's okay, eyes off me, look around the room just a little bit. Some of you are like, I can't do it, it's gonna be awkward. We might make eyes or something. Um, maybe you'll fall in love with somebody, who knows? Like, <laughs> God, God could be doing things here, I don't know. Um, but I, I, I hope you notice how diverse this this room is, just, just even this room. And last time Greg and I kind of, he, he went through the things and I think we have about 30 different nationalities that are represented here at HCC. And there aren't many places in the world that I would say are as diverse as the church. And, and you could be like, oh, my school, it's pretty diverse or my, my place of work or, or maybe my, my university. It's like, yes. But for the most part, you're not choosing to come together. Like you're, you're there for the education. You're there because you're being forced to be there out of necessity. But as the church, we choose to come together and be together. Now, some of you, I know it's like, no, my spouse is here. And if I want to enjoy the rest of my Sunday, I had to be here or your parents made you come here. I get that. 
But for the most part, we choose to be here, and why? On the basis of our relationship with Jesus Christ, that we are all members of God's family. And this is, this is a beautiful thing, I hope you realize this, because heaven, it, we're told, is going to be filled with every tribe, tongue, and nation. And I say this as much as I, I get the opportunity, is like, this is a small snapshot of what heaven might look like. And so in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And I love that verse, because like, how are, how are we saved? Well, it's through the gospel. Who's that open to? It's not open to certain economic classes, certain nationalities, certain ethnicities. It's open to anyone and everyone who would believe. Like, that's a pretty wide open invitation. Trust in Jesus. Nothing else really, like, going... You have to fit into this demographic or category. Now, in verse 5, Paul says to Philemon, uh, you have a love for Christians. And Philemon would have a love for Paul because Paul's responsible, he, he kind of hints at, for, for Philemon coming to faith. And then in verse 17, Paul says to Philemon, I want you to receive Onesimus just like you would receive me, like just like you would receive Paul himself. Now, imagine like, Paul somehow um, shows up here on a Sunday morning. And we're like, man, Paul, like, yeah, I'd be like, your, your writings, they have impacted my, like, Philippians. Man, I love that one. Um, and we, we might go, Paul, maybe, let, like, let's forget about James, forget about Greg. We're tired of hearing those guys. We'd bring Paul up, like, enlighten us, Paul. Say something wise. Give us an eloquent speech. And we were kind of like, okay, Paul, I want you to have this seat because the sound is just right. The heat pump hits you beautifully. It's like the best seat. And that's, we would show honor to Paul. And I mean, like, th there's a temptation for us to treat some Christians as more significant or special than others. And I'll say, like, I can be guilty of this. I always admit I'm a church nerd. Um, and so, like, there's certain church leaders that have influenced me, had an impact on me. And I've had some opportunities to meet some of these guys. And, like, it's weird. I get around them. I'm like, I don't know what to say. I get bashful. It's like, oh, you, you, you're so important in the church. But, but James, the, the half-brother of Jesus, again, he, he warns us against being like this. In James chapter 2, verse 1. He writes, my brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold onto the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there, or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? And so James kind of issues this challenge that we would look at ourselves to, to kind of see, am I showing preferential treatment to certain Christians based off of maybe an earthly title, based off of earthly social status? And amongst God's children, the Bible's kind of saying there, there, there's not really supposed to be this hierarchy as to importance or significance. Like it uses that, that term family. So listen to what Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 5. He says, don't rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters with all purity. And so kind of family is to kind of define 
our relationships here. Now, I said in the first service, I, I, I have to admit, I struggle with this one a little bit because some of you age so much better than us white folk. Um, it's just like the genes are good. I can't tell if you're older than me, you're younger than me. Are you a parent? Are you a sibling? I just, I just don't know. So I'm just going to try and love you. But the, the difficult for, thing for Paul is he has to choose to recognize Onesimus as a brother in Christ. That Paul is asking Philemon to choose to overcome culturally determined walls of hostility in personal history. And that's not an easy thing to do. But Paul's appeal, it's not based in Roman social conventions. He's saying, no, it's the Christian virtue of love. Like every person here, we're we're impacted by our, our surrounding culture. From the way that you talk, the way that you you dress, you live, you make decisions. And it's not that all these things are, are, are bad, that all the, the culture's influence is terrible. Uh, some of it's weird. Like, I don't get the, the young guys going out and getting perms. That just doesn't make sense to me. That mullets are making a comeback somehow also I find strange. But we're all kind of impacted by our culture. And so here, here's, here's the thing. Roman social convention, like that's what, that, that's what Philemon is immersed in. It would say, you know what you need to do to Onesimus Philemon? Be vindictive. Punish him, put him in his place, maybe kill him and make an example of him to the other slaves. But Paul, he says, Philemon's treatment of Onesimus, that should be transformed in the light of God's grace towards Philemon. He stands in the gap between two Christian men and he says, I want you to put your faith into practice and into action. And so just as Philemon benefits from the forgiveness through the gospel, He's being asked to forgive Onesimus for the way he's been wronged. And just as uh, Philemon has been brought into the family of God through Christ, that he's been received back, that's what he's asking Philemon to do with Onesimus, not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. And so Paul's kind of saying this, Philemon, I don't want you to do what culture tells you to do, but instead what Christ has done for you, I want you to go and do the same for others. He's saying, follow the example of Jesus. And this is kind of what the the Christian life is. It's it's following what Jesus has done in many ways. Now, when we come to Christ, here's one of the things we're admitting. You might not say it verbally, but you're you're admitting the ways of the world just don't work. Uh, we're, We're saying, you know what? I need a savior who will rescue me from the mess of this world. I need a savior who will rescue me, maybe from the mess that I've made of my life. We're also saying I need a king who will rule over my life with justice and righteousness. And so I raise this because if we admit that the world's ways didn't work up to that point, we have to admit or we have to recognize that we should not use the world's ways in dealing with one another. But if we were to be honest, I think some of us would have to admit that we're living primarily by the customs and the conventions of the culture and not of the culture of the kingdom of God. And instead of looking to scripture as to how we live, how we forgive, how we conduct our relationships, how we parent, how we spend our money, how we spend our time, how we address our our problems, we instead look to cultural conventions and customs. Like, what? What does ChatGPT tell me I should do? What would Oprah do? What what does Reddit suggest that I do in this situation? But 
In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27, Paul writes this, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. And that word holy, that word carries some weight. It's saying set apart, to be distinct. And so the church is meant to be distinct. We're to be different socially, spiritually than the rest of the world. And at a certain point, every believer needs to beginning, begin living out what they profess. The gospel has to impact how we live our lives. And when and where that happens, that's when the gospel has the power to change the world. And, and you might be skeptical about that. You might struggle to believe it. But I would say it's actually already has happened in places. Then in, in Paul's day, about half of the people who lived in the empire, they were, they were slaves. And slavery was an integral part of the, the, the structure of their, their system, their institutions, all of that. And so we go like, hey, why doesn't Paul just take the opportunity to write the letter, write this command, it, the Christians shall not have slaves. He, he could just put in a letter. He could get it endorsed by Peter and, and James. And people were like, well, the big guys are saying we can't have slaves. So I guess we, we can't have slaves. But in verse 14, Paul, Paul says something interesting. He says, I don't want to command you, Philemon, but I'm, I'm trying to persuade you so that your love would be authentic, that it would not be coerced. And Paul, Paul wants Philemon's goodness to be something of his own free will. He doesn't want it to be something that's forced upon him. And again, I, we might be going, okay, but why not just command him? Because that would be so much easier. But legislative morality does not have the transformational power that love does. And I'm hoping this kind of illustration is going to help us understand this a little bit. Um, most of us are used to this idea or hearing about the carbon tax. Um, and the, the government is kind of putting a little bit of a tax on a lot of things. And it's their attempt to reduce carbon emissions and combat uh, climate change. And so the carbon tax is legislated environmental care. It's like, we are doing it because we have to. We don't have much choice in the matter because I don't know about you, but when I go to pay for my gas, I'm like, I'd like to pay less. And they're like, oh, that's cool. Um, no, it's like, here's the price you have to pay. When you go to the grocery store, you don't get to haggle with them and go like, let's bring that down a little. That number's a little high. No, it's like, it is what it is because all of this thing's kind of built into the system. It's kind of legislated environmental care. But imagine tomorrow in this beautiful moment, the government's like, you know what? You can choose whether or not you want to pay the carbon tax from now on. And I'll be honest, I think a lot of us at that moment will be like, cool, I'm out. Why? Because the carbon tax is impacting our bottom line. It's like it's making the numbers in our bank accounts get smaller. It's not fun to roll up to the grocery store or at the cash and go like, what's this going to cost? I don't know. It's a bit of a gamble. And so we would go, I'm out. But maybe, let's just say maybe you happen to go on a trip last year and you went on a guided tour on some nature reserve and and like the the guide is like you know what 15 years ago the, the water used to be out there but now the water's coming up to here because of rising sea levels and then it talks about like how how rising sea levels is impacting the ecosystem and animals are being impacted but not just that it's starting to have an impact on the people who live around there you go man this this climate change thing um this this is a serious thing and so the government's like carbon tax, optional. And because of what you've seen, 
and what you know, you might go, no, I'll gladly pay that carbon tax because this thing is real and we, we got to stop it. And you might go, I'm going to start biking to work and I'm going to strive to have a smaller um, carbon footprint. And why did you do all of that? Well, it's because you saw a need and your heart was in it. And this is what Paul's trying to get Philemon to do, to want to do what he should. And I don't know if you've ever noticed, but when Greg and Guy get up here, we, we're not up here like issuing commands like you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to do that. One, because I don't think a lot of you would. I think you just go, who are you to tell me what to do? I get it also. But it's this, it's, it's this, like we want you to want to do what God's word tells you that you should do. That, that this is why we talk about the gospel so much that in light of what God has done for you, we want you to want to do what you should do. Because the Christian life is not meant to be this, that we look into the Bible and we see these things that are hard and we go, oh, I guess I've got to do it. The Bible tells me I have to. And we do it begrudgingly because we're afraid that God's going to come down on us if we don't do it. But instead, in light of God's grace towards us, we look at that and we go, I, I want to obey what God tells me to do. Because of what he's done in Jesus Christ, I want to live an obedient life. I want to be generous. I want to serve others. I want to follow Jesus. And so Paul gives up his apostolic right to kind of issue these commands. And instead, he, he appeals to Philemon's free choice to follow his conscience in deciding what to do. Again, think of it this way. I, I could tell my kids every day before you leave for school, you have to tell me that you love me. And if you don't tell me that you love me, well, I'm not going to feed you supper. Like th that, would be, like, that would be like legislated telling me them to love me. And be like, and, and like, if you don't tell me when you get home that you love me, no bedtime snack. Um, and like, I, I don't want that because that's, that's, that's forced love. But instead, like when my, my kids come up and they give me a hug, that makes me feel good. It's been a while since Seth has voluntarily done that because he's too cool for me to give me a hug. Um, but, but Jane, she'll come up, she'll give me a hug or she'll give a piece of paper that just says like Jane loves daddy. And it's like, oh, I didn't ask for it. But it makes you feel so much better that it's not compelled, but it's offered freely. And so Christianity's power to change the world, it does not lie in issuing decrees and rewriting laws, but instead hearts that have been rewired by God, renewed by God, and lives lived in response to what God has done for us are lives that can change the world. And so in contrast with the dominant views of the ancient culture, Paul wants Philemon to look at Onesimus through the eyes of Christ and to accept him not as a slave, but as a brother. And Paul doesn't ask Philemon to set Onesimus free, but actually to do what's more difficult, to love him as a brother. And his requirement lays this explosive charge beneath the master-slave relationship. It makes the wall come down. Because how can I love my brother and yet keep him enslaved? So Paul, he treats Onesimus as somebody who has value and worth. And it was that realization that, that kind of began making Christians go, okay, I, I, we, we've got to do something here and renounce slavery and begin that fight. That William Wilberforce, because of a transformed heart and mind, um, this British statesman, this Christian in the late 18th century and early 19th century, he worked to end the fight against slave trade um, um, from, from Africa to the West Indies. That in the U.S., the fight against slavery was led in large part by Christians. And it's, it's often been Christians who've led or spearheaded or began social justice and equality movements throughout history. 
Now, we, we have this t- opportunity, I think, as the church, because we're living in a time where we're kind of trending towards human life in the world, in culture, being almost treated as, as cheap and disposable. And as Christians, we can step into this and we can go, no, every human being has value and worth because they bear the image of God. They are not a machine. They are not a tool, but they are a person who is loved by God, loved so much that he sent his one and only son so that whoever believes in him, they could have eternal life and not perish. And so legislative morality, that doesn't really inspire true lasting change, but love does And at its core, the gospel is asking us to follow the example of Christ and what he's done for us. And if you were to study history over the last 2,000 years, just a brief history, you would see the impact of Christians following Jesus, living on mission for him. That educational institutions and hospitals were built Charitable organizations, orphanages, and social services founded. Like, I I could keep going, but a lot of these as a result of, of people following Jesus. Now, we don't know how Philemon responds to Paul's challenge to change the way of his thinking. A tradition says that he actually received Onesimus back as a brother. He, he loved him. But this, this letter seems like Paul's personal appeal to Philemon. But the reality is Paul addresses it to Philemon, his wife, his son, and the church that meets in his home. And so the whole church would have heard this letter being read. And so it's not meant just for Philemon. It wasn't just meant for the people back then, that this is God's word, that he knew in this moment, 2,000 years later, you would hear these words. And so how do you respond to Paul's challenge to let your identity inform all that you do? One of the things I do love about HCC is, again, how multicultural we are. Um, and, and sometimes because of this, I get to get invited into your gatherings, your celebrations, some of the things that are taking place. And it's, I, I like to see this because I get to see some of the ways that life was back maybe in the country that you, you originally came from. And so like, I, I see how you, you, you celebrate and how you treat one another and how you laugh. And I, I enjoy the food a lot of the time. And, and so like, I, I, I get this and I get around this and it's like, it makes me say, like, you know what, someday I want to go. I want to go to the Philippines. I want to go to Nigeria. I want to go to Brazil. I want to go to Mexico. I want to go to, like, I could keep going. I'm going to have to do a world tour at some point. Um, But you get around certain groups, and they make you say, I want to go. And this is how we are to live as, as Christians, that we should live in such a way that we bring a taste of heaven to earth, that when people get around us, And they see the way that we talk, that we treat one another, that we love one another. They'll say, I want to go to. That is a family that I want to belong to. 